Welcome to Supply Chain Now, the voice of global supply chain. Supply Chain Now focuses on the best in the business for our worldwide audience, the people, the technologies, the best practices, and today's critical issues, the challenges and opportunities. Stay tuned to hear from those making global business happen right here on Supply Chain Now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Scott Luton right here on Supply Chain Now. Welcome to today's show. I'll tell you, you're in for a treat today. On today's show, we're going to be speaking with a supply chain technology leader whose journey and perspective are both fascinating. So stay tuned for an intriguing conversation. Now, with that said, I want to introduce our guest here today, our special guest. He's been described as an amogram of business, technology, innovation, and leadership. I'm surprised I know how to say amogram. He's, he's long been inspired by Arthur C. Clarke's quote, any technology that does not appear magical is insufficiently advanced. I love that. Our guest has spent a lot of time working in the vaunted Silicon Valley, is now doing big things when it comes to supply chain and commerce. So please join me in welcoming Richard Donaldson, a co-founder and senior executive with Requis. Richard, how are you doing? I'm doing great, Scott. Thanks for having me on today. It's a, it's a great position to be on the other side of the mic and get to get a few questions coming my way. Absolutely. Well, that's one thing I didn't mention. You're also a fellow uh, content creator, a passionate content creator, and I look forward to touching on that. But you know, before we ask you and get to know you a little better, we initially met at the Reverse Logistics Association event out in Vegas, probably about two years ago, I think. Is that right? That's absolutely correct. It, it was uh, RLA. I think they're also, yeah, that was, that's exactly where it was. And I think we're both big fans of Tony Shirota. I tell you that yep. that whole reverse logistics space has been an intriguing one to study in, in in recent years. But we'll have to give Tony a tip of the hat for now because I want to learn a lot more about the one and only Richard Donaldson. Are you ready to go? Absolutely. Let's do All this. right. So for starters, before we get to the heavy lifting, and we're going to talk about your your professional journey, some of your uh, thought leadership on what's going on in the current business landscape, and the importance of giving back, which uh, I really admire about you. Let's get to know you better first. So tell us where did you grow up. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Minnesota, so the land of 10,000 yep. lakes, uh, Minneapolis in particular, so pretty much lifelong uh, all the way through high school. Great state to go from, Midwest boy, uh, Vikings, Twins fans, through and through. Uh, you and I were sort of joking earlier, but uh, being a lifelong Minnesota fan, I, I know a lot of heartache uh, in the sports world, so I can commiserate with everybody on that one. But it's one of those things, and you take kind of the the boy out of Minnesota, but not the Minnesota out of the boy. So that's always, uh, I've always kind of found, I, I've always been very, prideful is probably the wrong word, but certainly it, I know growing up in that environment in the Midwest and the Minnesota nice and all that sort of stuff um, really helped me kind of craft who I am a lot throughout my development, throughout my career, uh, and just, uh, just through my whole journey. Yeah, it's gotten you know it's gotten some weirdness in the news lately, but hey, hey everything's weird these that's days. That's right. So. Everybody is weird in some way, yeah, shape, or form. Everything's weird. <laughs> but you okay. know, I, I'm a big fan. I've I've spent I've had a couple of trips up to the Minneapolis area. Love the people. I love the vibe of the city. Of course, mm -hmm. I think I had what's the famous hamburger? Oh, Fud uh, Fuddruckers or uh, oh god, the, the well, something Susie. Different. Oh yeah, uh, cheese in the middle. Mm. Well, yep. we had whatever, yep. whatever those are called. There's a diners, drive-ins, and dives episode. I think is what you're referring to. <laughs> Maybe so. I think Guy Fieri may have been. There. It was, a, it was a delicious burger with cheese baked in the middle. But the people yeah. in particular, you know, people are just. Yeah. You said that Minnesota nice, but there, it's really a, a special place to visit and do business in. And I imagine growing up, you mentioned sports. Of course, I'm a big yeah. Atlanta Braves fan. You're a big Minnesota Twins fan. They met in the 91 World Series in what was probably one of the best World Series of all times. Oh. The Twins took it home in yep. exciting fashion. That had to be a, a special uh, moment in your upbringing. Oh, goodness. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, I so I graduated in high school in 88, go there, prep school there. And so I was able to also see the series in 88 and a little bit in 91. So those are the two, you know, for the twins, right? Or for Minnesota, those are world championships that we hold on to for dear life because that's all we've had in a while. But that one in particular was, if I remember, Kirby Puckett was one of the key uh, key members there. He's no longer with us. But you just had, a, yeah, you had a kind of Cinderella 
story team and sort of the Minnesota, you know, in our franchise, the Twins in particular, we have a lot of affinity towards like maybe the Oakland A's right. where it was never a high budget team, but it was a team, you know, there weren't any near all-stars, right. you know, like you have in a Yankees situation or in that time, even the Braves, right? I mean, it was a pretty, I mean, Turner was behind right. them, I think at that time, you had some big money involved finally. behind them. And yeah, right, <laughs> right. Um, you know, finally something to compete with New York and their money. So, you know, there was that scrappy kind of win. It really, Minnesota's, you know, people just went nuts over it. And I think we probably had a few days off. The entire state probably shut down to celebrate. I mean, it's kind of that sort of thing. I love <laughs> but, it. Yeah, vivid memory. I love it. And, you know, th those good people in Minnesota deserve that for sure. And hopefully y'all had a wonderful time. Yeah. The Atlanta Braves that year, they were the worst in the league the previous, the previous year. And they came back to, of course, win the, at the time, the NL West. And then go to the World Series, which, you know, was was a, a treat in and of itself. So yeah, seven games. Yeah, it was it, seven games. That's right. And, and the seventh yeah. game was that in, in and of itself was a, a battle between two oh. eventual World Hall of Famers and Jack Morris and yep. John Smoltz, I believe. Yep. So yep, that's correct. Well, hey, so from it sounds like you and I could probably reminisce. We could have a podcast series on the '91 World Series, probably exchange yeah, right. lots of stories there. But what else? I'm going to talk about Colgate University, where you attended uh, in a sure. moment. But yep. give me one other anecdote or memory that's really important to you growing up in in Minneapolis and Minnesota. Well, one thing I, I is we're thinking is we're kind of chatting through there, and I started thinking about it, and when I started thinking about Minnesota nights. An absolute vivid memory that I think kind of shapes that, right, is the incredibly harsh winters that all Minnesotans have to deal with, right? And, you know, as I reflect on that, growing up, you know, as a kid, you don't think much about it, right? I mean, 20 degrees out, 20, you know, uh, 20 below zero outside with wind chill, where it's all of a sudden 60 below zero. And wow. you know, to most people on the planet, oh yeah, I mean, that sounds, and it is, it's, it's, you know, for most people, that's like death. Right. Kind of that's thing. like, for us, it was like, Hey, whatever, you know, it's just what we do. Like, we don't know any better yet. That harsh environment creates a bond, right. And it creates a, almost a necessity where like in the winter time, I'll vividly remember. Right. And this is shocking to most people, but you know, in the winter time, you'd always see you know, cars constantly being turned on an hour before anybody's leaving just to get the damn thing heated up. But the car started, it's running, keys are in it, no one's watching it, but everyone's doing it. And you didn't have like a rash of car thefts or anything like that because everyone was, everyone knew that's just, you know, that's just what you had to do. Or, you know, in Minnesota, you know, if you were stopped on the side of the road, especially in winter, and you saw someone, you pulled over, you helped, you knew that person is in, you know, whether they recognize that they're in a life and death situation when it's 20 below and they're pulled over on the side of the road. So like when I moved to California later, I remember once being on the bridge, the Bay Bridge, someone was stuck in the middle of the bridge and my instinct was to pull over and help them. And by contrast, they looked at me like I was going to carjack them. Right. And I was like, I, I was so shocked. I was just like, Hey, I, you know, I'm just, like, I just saw you pulled over. Right. I thought I'd help. That's just, but that's what I grew up doing. Right. And it was really a byproduct of oddly enough, the harsh winters, I think, because when you're in an environment like that, you can't, I mean, you just, you recognize real quickly that karma is real. Like you, you, you are going to need help at some point. Therefore you help other people. And it's just almost innate in your existence. I love that. So it's, it's that kind of experience that I think is really, I mean, anybody who's listening either lived in Minnesota or you know been from there, I think that'll key to them pretty quickly. I love that. Right. But I think that's where that Minnesota nice comes from, right? It's not that they're not competitive. It's not that they're not, you know, out there getting stuff done, but it's just, you know, you, you, you just, you kind of grew up with a different perspective. Like I need to, I have to help people because I know I'm going to need help at some point. Right. Too. I love it. It's like a disposition. It's, it's just a, such yeah. a great disposition and mindset. Okay, so I want to move along to you went, you were an Ivy Leaguer. You went to Colgate University. So tell us, yes, you know, for a lot of folks that may not experience, you know, that, that level of, of uh, education, what was your favorite mm -hmm. aspect, especially when it comes to learning? Not, uh, I'm not sure if beer and pizza were part of your okay. college experience like they are, certainly a big part of mine. But putting that aside, well, what, was, uh, what was your favorite aspect about that? 
Yeah, I, I mean, well, immediately you make me think of Animal House. And for a lot of people, they may not remember that movie, but for our generation, um, and funny enough, uh, the guys who wrote that, in, as it goes, actually were uh, parroting uh, a little bit of Colgate and Dartmouth. Really? Yeah, which is sort of interesting. And so it was a pretty small school, 2,400 total undergraduate. And the, th- the reason I ended up at Colgate is one, um, I was looking for a, you know, a solid school to kind of move into. But what sold me at Colgate after reviewing a few schools is A, the size. I really like the compactness of 2,400 students total. So you're looking at 800 a grade kind of thing, right? Um, and that's usually the size of a class in high school, not necessarily an entire freshman class at, a, at an undergraduate program. So I liked that ability to kind of be in a tight-knit environment. However, interestingly about Colgate, with only 2,400 students, they still support Division I sports. Wow. So football, hockey. Um, now, it doesn't mean they're good, <laughs> right? But what that, what that meant was you had to have with that small of a student population and to, to have those kind of sports, soccer and hockey, which we were pretty good at, basketball even, which we were not good at. Um, although I think they made the tournament a couple of years ago. That meant that everybody was a student athlete. So it was that cross section that really allowed. I mean, I was a student athlete myself. I mean, I didn't play. I played. Uh, funny enough, I played a, a team sport or whatever, a water polo for four years. Mm. But we competed pretty, pretty seriously. Which is, you think you go to the West Coast, but it was that. It was that. It was this. It was the smallness. It was the student athletes. And then you know, after the fact, the other thing that was really powerful for me at Colgate is I actually spent an entire year abroad, uh, living in Europe as part of a program there and lived in Switzerland. And that really shaped me for the next jump of my career because I got a chance to actually not only live there, really experience what it meant to be fluent in a language uh, because I think I was studying French for years and you know I didn't realize until I lived there. And again, vividly remember this moment, I had a dream entirely in French. <laughs> no translation, there wasn't me you know, English and then go to French. It was literally in French wow. and there was no, and, and that's when I knew now I lost it all. Let, let me do, let me be you know, clear. But when that happened, I knew I'm like, Oh my God, this is what it means to be fluent. Like I wasn't thinking about translating the, the French words just showed up. And then in, in being there, I also was very fortunate enough to end up working. It was on an internship kind of got extended, which is why I was there a little bit longer for a pretty well-known Minnesota company called Cargill. It's a, one of the largest oh, yeah. privately owned companies in the world. And I was working on their oil trading desk there doing, ironically, logistics. So I was the fulfillment guy. I was, uh, you know, making sure shipments, uh, global shipments of oil were getting for, to and fro uh, the Middle East or Europe to the U.S. and vice versa. And um, I worked for a bunch of traders. There's like five of them. They're all kind of in their early 30s. And I, I, I remember they said, hey, I you know, like, would like to come back, you know, when I graduate, blah, blah, blah. And they gave me some advice that I, to this day, I continually give back to people, which was, all right, of course, we'd love to have you back. Of course, we'd love for you to come work for us. However, we're going to tell you what no one told us at 21 uh, or 22. And that is, you are never going to have the least amount of responsibilities as you do now. Go forth and use that and do things that are off the beaten path right? Get out. Career's going to be here. Job's going to be here, but you're never going to have those early twenties again in the way that you do now. And so and, and, and honestly, they didn't even have to finish a sentence. I was gone at that point. Right. <laughs> I love that. And so I, I actually left and, uh, you know, upon graduation, instead of jumping into a job, I took ended up being five years of traveling around and, and was a chef and a scuba instructor and a ski instructor and experiencing a whole variety life. of things. Yeah, really. And that, Oddly enough, which sounds amazing and fun, and it was, I'm not going to say that, but it, by the time I hit those five years, I knew I wanted to get back to work. And I was so grounded and focused at that time when I actually ended up in San Francisco in 97 and sort of pounded my way into investment banking. Right. You know, And I was an analyst at 27, where most of my cohorts were 21, 22, just out of college. And they looked at me like, oh, my God, you know, you're in Hawaii and that just sounds so awesome. We want to be there. And I was like, yeah, but it's an island. Right. It sounds great. You know, but what we have here is like I, I, that's all I wanted to do. So I was so focused that 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 experience really helped me focus in on what I ended up became my career in Silicon Valley. So. All right. So you shared a lot there. I, w- I want to 
Make yeah, right. sure I, <laughs> that's good. I want to make sure I understood one of your last points though, because it seemed like all of that time kind of exploring and living, you know, taking the advice you've been given, Hey, you're not going to be this age mm-hmm. again with, with so little responsibility, take advantage of it. All of that lack of, of focus, really what I heard you say is what helped create the focus as you, when you were ready to jump right. back in and, and really start your building your career. Is that right? That's correct. And, and, you know, later in life, I think when I sort of reflected on it, what became apparent to me and unbeknownst to us as kids going through middle school and high school and ultimately college is it's almost like you don't have a choice. You're just doing it. That's what you should do. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. You should do it. But you kind of on this track almost unconsciously and it takes getting off that track and looking back on it. Is that where I really want to be? And that's, that's not the norm I've found here in the US, whereas outside of the US, it is a little bit more normal. For example, in Australia, going on a you know, couple year walkabout, that's pretty par for the course for Australia. You know, uh, so just a different philosophy kind of around things you should be doing in your life. Like here in the US, we're so on this you know, treadmill right. where it's like you go, you get your degree, you get undergraduate. <laughs> You get a job, you get a graduate degree. And by the time you kind of realize it, holy shit, I'm in my mid to late thirties. I don't even know what happened. Right. What, what do roses you know? smell like? I don't know. Yeah, really. And, <laughs> you know, and I'm not saying there's one way is right or wrong. Right. For me, that experience allowed me, just like you said, to kind of get outside of myself, do things completely, you know, whimsically. Right. And what for me ended up happening is it, it allowed me to realize, okay, this is awesome. It's fun. It's great. I'm not going to lie. It was a lot of fun, right? I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, <laughs> downplay it. It was, it was a lot of fun. Right. But at some point I hit a point uh, uh, about 27 where I was just like, hmm, you know what? I kind of done it. I, I, I got it out of my system. I, I do want to go back to work. I do want to apply myself. So on that note then, so uh, 1997, it sounds like you landed in San Francisco. You pounded, if I heard you correctly, you pounded your way into working at an investment firm. Is that right? That's correct. I I ended up, I, for whatever reason, just wanted to be an investment banker. I'm not sure I knew why at the time. It just sounded cool. But in retrospect, it ended up being the true foundation building for really the longevity of my career. Hmm. And timing you know in the world of entrepreneurship timing is almost everything you know you can have the greatest idea in the world but if it's ill-timed you know it doesn't matter what you're trying to do and i can go through all sorts of stories in that one but but anyways in 97 when i landed there i was like oh i'm going to be an investment banker it just so happened to be kind of the upswing of the whole internet bubble right so at that time you had the dot-com craze going on you had all this banking that started moving out from New York to the West Coast right. to kind of take advantage of these ultimate internet IPOs that started showing up. So I ended up at a firm called Montgomery Securities, which has long since been acquired by Bank of America. But when I say I pounded in, I applied to all these investment banks out there, right? And I'm going to tell you, my resume is a little bit different than what they were used to seeing. And I remember uh, one interview I had, an interviewee invited me in and I remember this vividly. I walked in the door, ready to interview. And she said, listen, uh, I brought you in here because I'm just going to tell you up front, I'm not going to hire you. I was like, well, this is an interesting interview to start with. And she said, I wanted to meet you because I wanted to see who you know, is a chef, scuba instructor, and ski instructor that thinks they can become an investment banker. Now, not the nicest thing to hear. Definitely the humility and like just burst your ego, like, you know, but for me, that supercharged me because I was like, that's so offensive on so many levels, right? Like, why not? Right. You know, my core curriculum is no different. I just took five years off. And in fact, and in retrospect, I'm going to tell you, I found myself to be more focused, get more done and accelerated than my counterparts who are 21 and 22 because of those five years, because of that focus. And in fact, it became, in my own opinion, kind of my, you know, strength, you know, in what allowed me to accelerate further, faster, beyond the people that I was working with. And I wanted to prove her wrong. (laughs) 
I love that. So when I say I pounded in, that's why I pounded in. I was just like, I'm not giving up. <laughs> Further, faster. Uh, what's the um the the ten million dollar man? What was in intro? <laughs> Oh uh, God, the six million dollar man. Uh, yeah, the inflation. Man. Uh, uh, yeah, of course. I mean, yeah, exactly. Faster, farther, stronger, better. Be major. Yeah, or whatever. whatever it is. Yeah. Well, so all right. For the sake of time, let's. So yeah. you you broke into when when you really you know after you traveled the world and, and really had a wonderful time having all kind of experiences, you then broke into the uh, investment banking world. Let's talk about prior to your current role. What mm -hmm. other role or two? really helped shape your worldview, Richard? Oh, goodness. So uh, it's not the roles, but it's sort of what, so I started, I, I kind of chunked my career at the moment into thirds. So the first third there was sort of, I'll call it my grounding foundational skill set building. So investment banking coupled with going to night school to get my MBA. Um, I never got the MBA officially because I wasn't necessarily concerned about the piece of paper, but I wanted the knowledge. So hmm. I was taking classes at night, applying that in my day job and trust me, investment banking, just all the horror stories that you've heard, you know, working 15 hours a day. Yeah, that happened. Right. Um, but again, I go back to, I was so committed and focused that like then going to school for two or three hours a night, you know, it just added to me, like I was ready to do that. So uh, investment banking, economic consulting, those were sort of my financial skill set business foundation that I put together. Then I made my jump in around 2000 to my first startup, uh, which was a company called at the time Tech Planet, no longer here. It was the Silicon Valley version of Geek Squad, right? So we were the $20 million funded Silicon Valley darling. The Geek Squad, ironically, was a Minneapolis-based company, right. right? That got acquired by Best Buy that had a much more practical, Minnesota, nice, solid kind of plan with not a lot of ego. I learned with my first startup on how to do everything wrong, <laughs> which was blow through $20 million, have the hubris of the whole doc. I mean, everything you read about the dot-com or experience or remember about it, you know, it was had a CEO, super nice guy, super intelligence, but proud of the fact that he didn't have a business plan, could raise all this money. You know, we were just spending it in marketing without actually be having a profitable location in any way, shape or form. I mean, we literally did most everything wrong short of Short of probably hiring, you know, I think I was the 30th employee. I mean, within 12 months, we were at 450. Wow. Right. Oh, yeah, which is amazing to say, but you cannot grow that way. Right. I mean, there were so many problems along the way that eventually we folded after like 15 months. So, and then that led me into sort of infrastructure. So, first third was kind of building foundation. And then I got into the whole data center infrastructure world. Right. And there was a multiple jobs in there. And I happened to be involved again at that time data centers were still new. They were being kind of reimagined, reinvented. They've been around before, right. but they've never been as densely populated as the internet was going to demand. And this is the early 2000s, right? Yeah, kind of early through, you know, ultimately to where I got to eBay. I was pretty focused on building um, large web-scale data centers. I was involved with the crowd that, you know, ultimately are the people we know today at Google and Microsoft and Twitter and everywhere else for that matter, Facebook. Because everyone who was doing that, well, we all kind of knew each other. And what ended up happening is, is, is will happen. Everyone was innovating in the same way or moving in the same direction. And so what, what actually happened is there ended up being a lot of collaboration amongst these operators, not necessarily giving away trade secrets, although, God, it got to the point where everyone was just sharing everything because we all knew that that collective development helped all of us accelerate the data center design best practices over that period. And it ended up proving itself out right. true. And so it was, to answer your question, the, the, that middle third of my career being involved in this sort of vanguard movement that is creating its own playbook because there isn't one to reference, right? right? True entrepreneurship, like you're you're building, there is no book. You can't go, now there's a books. There's books on data centers all over the place. We didn't have that stuff. Right. We were making it up as we go along. Sure. You know, I remember, uh, you know, when I first went into a data center and it was predicated on the old models of, you know, these raised floors. And, you know, one of my first, and I'm not an engineer, I'm, I'm 
arguably a pretty dumb guy, but I asked pretty stupid questions every now and then. And these stupid questions ended up being the kind of fundamental problems that we were identifying. You know, people were building data centers the way they used to build them in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Okay, those computers were pretty different. And the whole raised floor concept, just at a very simple level, they were trying to push cold air up into the servers. I was like, okay, I don't, I don't get it. Like, I'm pretty sure heat rises and cold air falls. Like, why are we doing that that Hmm. way? And that ended up, and I'm not saying I, I mean, a bunch of us were all kind of realizing this stuff. So all this sort of like, this is how we built data centers had to be kind of blown apart so that we could then begin to start building them in the way that the modern internet infrastructure requires. So let let me ask you something here about data centers, because as things continue to shift, Fast forward to uh-huh. 2021 and beyond, you know, there's server yeah. farms and data centers popping up everywhere. Everywhere, here. including space. By right. Way. That's right. Yeah. I don't know a whole bunch about that aspect of industry. I do know uh, here in Georgia, I think Facebook set up a, yep. a server farm yep. and instantly, like yep. overnight, they became that site became one of the biggest users of electricity. Right. So what, what do you think? Yep. We're going to talk about bigger industry things, you know, towards the latter half of today's conversation, but but really quick, in a, in a succinct answer, how can data centers and server farms and all of that, which is being leaned on for all the digital transformation, all the cloud-based stuff, all of our social media that we know and love, all the emails we love sending, all that stuff, how will that evolve, especially as we look for more circularity and more sustainability? What, what's a quick thought you've got around that? Great question. So renewable energy. The data center industry is one of the most innovative energy developers, even standing up to the traditional energy and oil companies. So if I look at my counterparts and colleagues at Google and Facebook and Microsoft, and you know, this is Joe Cava over at Google, this is Christian Bellotti over at Microsoft, uh, Tom Furlong over at, at, at Facebook, literally I know them and we all get together. I don't as much anymore, but a couple times a year and share what our best practices are. And and everyone is in the goal of moving towards 100% renewable energy. So if you look at the sustainability net zero footprint, you know, at Google, at Microsoft, at Facebook, as corporations, they are leading with, or, you know, net zero footprints through direct investment and innovation in not only renewable energy, but then also anything that can do in decarbonization or water reclamation. And they continue to push the envelope because quite frankly, the energy world wasn't innovating in that direction as fast. And to your point, everyone in the data center world realized we need to go solve this ourselves. And that's, but that's also the kind of people that they are. You know, if I don't, if I can't find an answer somewhere, I'll go figure it out. And so if I look at the inventions and the patents and the, uh, you know, the IP portfolios, if you go look at the IP portfolios of Google and Facebook and Microsoft with respect to data centers and infrastructure, they have thousands of patents in the area of renewable energies, again, water reclamation, right. you know, every, everything that the rest of the world is just not just now, but kind of becoming more catching up to they've been thinking and doing for the last 15 years. Love that. Especially the doing part. Love that. Yeah. All right. So let's, let's shift gear. I, Cause I want to get into what you're doing now, Yes, sir. but, but for biggest, a, one of your big Eureka moments, I know we, we can't do your, your, your journey justice in the time we have here. What was one powerful Eureka moment that you've had either recently or, or earlier in your career? What's one that you can share with us? I would say one of the biggest Eureka moments kind of touches back to what your question was about data centers and infrastructure is the power of collaboration across an industry can propel the world forward in a way that individuals and individual companies just can't do. And that to me is something I've brought, or if you will, kind of transposed from my my middle third of my career in data centers and infrastructure and seeing that firsthand, seeing the power of collaboration, seeing, you know, let's get rid of this whole secrecy, right. you know, kill or be killed, you know, kind of, I don't know, it's, it's almost a generational thing where it's like, we can co-op things legitimately. We can be partners and compete with each other 
and achieve great things together. There's enough to go around. Agreed. Right. It's and it's that mentality. Yeah. It's, it's that uh, there's a mentality called um, uh, scarcity versus abundance. Yes, abundance mentality. Yes, yes Richard. Yes. That's right. That's right. And and it's the abundance mentality that you know I I saw and you know it's Microsoft sells you know you know what they sell they sell Xboxes and computers and operating systems they're not selling infrastructure necessarily I mean they are kind of with Azure and stuff like that but 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 my point is the infrastructure was a means to you know their, to, to enable their products right. and they also realized that so they started there's a lot of mind share you know now I mean to be fair there's little nuggets here and there that everyone keeps kind of secret but that's okay you know it's not, not like everything open kimono but my point is when I started to look at and then make my transition into more supply chain, which is a byproduct of me working at eBay, ironically in infrastructure, because right. I was hired to run the supply chain for the infrastructure, which then led me to supply chain and you know wanting to innovate here. That's one of the things through conversations like this, at, you know, your shows, my shows or whatever, you know, these conferences, but really trying to harness this collective, you know, thought leadership into things that the rest of the industry can benefit yep. from, right? And I think that's so the eureka moment is really realizing that there is truly, and this is through direct experience, truly more power in open kimono style collaboration than you're ever going to get in this secret. Um, you know, and an example I give that just is also sort of tangentially related is this is why open source software destroyed closed source software. Mm. The power of open source lives and breathes what I'm describing. It's all about collaborative software development. And it's why closed source couldn't keep right. up. Rising tide lifts all ships. That's right. And and water is a very powerful force that can complete that analogy. Oh, yes. All right. So um, a lot of stuff to think about chew on there, but let's talk about what Reckless is up to. So, so in a nutshell, sure. what does the organization do? Absolutely. So Reckless, uh, Reckless is a uh, enterprise supply chain platform built to serve the entire supply chain organization, right? So unlike in my experience, and this was when I was thrown into supply chain at eBay, just like everyone else who's a supply chain professional, first thing I realized was, oh my goodness, this is a nightmare. <laughs> uh, like no one knows where anything is. Uh, yeah, I'm being facetious, but you get my point. You know, bad data, uh, you know, inconsistent systems, you know, difficulty, you know, people trying to shoehorn something like SAP, which everyone uses. Right. In, you know, into becoming a supply chain solution, which it's not, you know, and I'm not ripping on SAP, but it's a financial backend. Sure. It's not, it's never, it was intended to be a supply chain platform. And supply chain, I always found very simply when I was doing this at eBay and then began to sort of look across uh, not just the technology industry then, but across all supply chain organizations in any industry, I realized that there is a fundamental attribute that all supply chain teams are doing, and that's that they are moving an asset through the supply chain. So Requis as a platform not only wanted to become or is, has become an end and and people say that, but to be specific, the supply chain organization has a procurement team that buys a bunch of stuff. They have an asset management team that manages the life cycle of the asset. And then they have a disposition team that often is getting rid of that stuff as we call it buy, manage, sell. Well, the consistent object that moves through that is that asset. So we built a platform with the lowest common denominator being that asset record moving through the supply chain. And I don't claim that that's necessarily innovative, but it's really breaking down to the core element of what a supply chain organization does, and then building a system that allows you to seamlessly move from buying, managing, and selling so that you don't have to have multiple systems and you have the consistent asset record moving through that platform. And I'm going to steal from Benioff, Mark Benioff at, at Salesforce, when I kind of break Salesforce down as a platform in the world of sales and marketing or customer relationship management, the common denominator in Salesforce is the customer record. It's, it's what the entire platform is built around, sure. right? In our world, in supply chain, our customer record is the asset record. And so we focused on building a solution that allowed that asset record to move through seamlessly. And then also ensured that the entire organization can live in one space, not have to have multiple systems that somehow need to be cobbled together. And so, you know, Requis is that kind of platform. And I believe that's 
we're seeing now that that's becoming more recognized as a, as a concept. Again, you know, we were fortunate enough to have thought of that and started developing that. I'll be honest with you, though, this is not the first time someone's tried to build a, a supply chain platform. You know, if you go all the way back to, again, my early days in Silicon Valley, 2000, 2001, there, there was a company called Commerce One that was a early version of a supply chain platform. In fact, a friend of mine was the founding CFO. Really? They flamed out, you know, but, but it wasn't because they were wrong. It was because the supply chain organizations weren't ready to digitize at that time. I go back to my timing point, right? Timing is critical, right? And it just so happens that pre-pandemic supply chains were looking to innovate, change, and evolve. The pandemic has now accelerated that. We just were lucky enough to be at the right place at the right time with the right solution. I'll be honest, you know, did we know we were doing that? No, but we were pretty lucky. And any entrepreneur that tells you that they had that figured out, I'm going to tell you they're lying. <laughs> There's a lot of luck involved in this stuff. Serendipity. Right? Absolutely. Um, you got to create your yeah, own luck. Yeah. It's a big part of it. Yeah, as correct. Well. Correct. Chance favors the prepared, yes. uh, as I like to say. I like that. Right. And in this case, you know, Reckless was built um, for supply chain by supply chain people, right? We weren't finance people pretending to supply, like, like we literally lived and breathed supply chain and realized the problems and, and issues that were in there. But again, I want to call out the abundance mentality. I think there is a lot of supply chain platforms that are starting to emerge. Gartner has released a new magic quadrant called the Multi-Enterprise Supply Chain Business Network. That is a mouthful, man. Like I, I want to go to those guys and wring their necks and be like, dude, you guys got to make this a little streamline. That's just too, yeah, right. That's just too good. It's a supply chain problem. Right. That's what you guys are describing. But the point being is historically, the magic quadrants were around the discrete parts of the supply chain. There was a procurement magic quadrant. There was an asset management quadrant. There was a vendor management quadrant, right? And these are all the old solutions that we're all used to seeing that are out there. But again, all of those were discrete solutions that had to, to be to work for supply chain. They had to tie and talk together. So why not just build a solution that does all that? That's what we see as supply chain platforms today. So love that. Uh, I love customization, specialization. That's always a good thing. What about really quick? So I'll move on to uh, talk about international supply chain day here in a moment and, and some other things, yeah, sure. but really quick, if you had a 30 seconds to reach a thousand potential founders, potential entrepreneurs in a, in a room and you had their captive attention, what's one piece of advice mm -hmm. you give them? Don't give up. <laughs> I mean, I, I've been super simple. Don't give up. You know, one of the things you're going to learn as an entrepreneur, if you're a founder, if you're trying to start something, if you haven't done it before, you're going to find out very quickly. Everyone thinks you're wrong. Everyone's going to tell you it's not the right time. You know, they're going to shoot holes. The natural inclination for people is to resist change. Mm. And as an entrepreneur, the lessons I've learned is the bullets fly early and often at the very beginning. And you think you've got the greatest idea since sliced bread. And I'm telling you, 50 people are going to show up and be like, no, nah, you're just dumb. Don't do that. <laughs> if you truly believe in your soul that you're on to something, do it. Stick with it. Don't give up. I love it. Channeling some Jimmy Valvano there, the late and great Jimmy Valvano. <laughs> Don't give up. Don't ever give up, which I love. I think it's such a, yeah. you know, sometimes the simplest messages are the most powerful yeah. messages. And it's the ones that folks need to hear. There's a great quote about a famous past saint. And I'm not going to remember his or her name right this second, but uh, you never know. The sermon that you're preaching today is is perhaps exactly what one person out there needs to hear. And so not yeah. not giving up, don't ever give up is something that is a simple but very powerful message. So thank you for sharing that, Richard. Okay. International Supply Chain Day. Clearly, you've got a, a passion and fervor for all things supply chain. Tell tell us about what prompted you to to create that International Supply Chain Day. And uh, let's say it comes up on June, June 4th, right? Tell us more about That's that. That's correct. Yeah, absolutely. So, so um, I got to give credit where credit's due. This was definitely a collaborative effort. And um, my founding partner and CEO, another Richard, Richard Martin, got the idea of really kind of, you know, leaning in hard into sustainability and circularity. And so uh, the idea around Supply Chain Day, International Supply Chain Day, was we just internally started thinking, gosh, there's a lot of these days out there. There's some supply chain days, but you know, why isn't there a 
day that is recognized on an annual basis where we have some real tangible goals in front of us. So, you know, the UN's got all these net zero things and stuff like that. So the, the idea behind International Supply Chain Day was not only to create a day to have a call to action for the world's, what we like to call aggregate supply chain practitioners, to focus on sustainability, achieving net zero, but then create a 10-year objective where we would like to see the world move towards 50% circularity. And the reason that we didn't pick that out of the, out of the blue, one, we think it's achievable. Two, it's one of the more practical means by which the supply chains can start to actually, funny enough, the companies themselves can start making more money by selling more of their used and, and obsolete stuff. You know, one of the one of the things I always like to throw out to people that usually is what kind of gets their eyes like, you know, popped open is the Fortune 2000 companies, 2000 companies, they spend per year, per year, per year, over $12 trillion worth of stuff. Those same 2000 companies are sitting on, or imagine if they're buying $12 trillion worth of stuff per year, they're doing that over 10 or 20 years. So they are sitting on an accumulated asset base that is estimated at $187 trillion, wow. 2,000 companies. And if they're selling that stuff on an annual basis, two or 3% of that 187, you got another four, six, seven trillion dollars of sales activities going on, right? So buying and selling is almost $20 trillion worth of activity, 2,000 companies, that's it. Compare that to the entire world of consumer commerce, mm. That's measured at three or four or five trillion dollars. It's like four or five times the size, right? So it's the single biggest economic sector to move online since the internet was invented. And more to this point, the thing that we showcase all the time is a wonderful National Geographic article uh, written last year by a guy named Robert Kunzig, K-U-N-Z-I-G, and it was focusing on circularity and sustainability. But he has this incredible infographic that depicts the world supply chain and the 106 gigatons of stuff that we yank out of the ground every year, right? And that 106 gigatons is split roughly 50%, you know, biomass and 50% materials coming out of the ground. But when you see this and you see how it moves through the system, then 8% of that is circular. Okay. So if it's 8% circular right now, why isn't it 50% circular, right? And you can see where all this waste is and stuff, but it's, it's that, broken down simple view when you start to put in front of people and and you again go back to this the reason supply chain day we wanted to launch it is to raise awareness around a very achievable practical goal because everyone's talking sustainability now we're talking carbon and carbon credits and carbon markets and offsets and you know this that and the other thing and i'm not saying those are wrong right. but they can be pretty complicated sure if if we just, and I'm not saying this is exclusive, it's not mutually exclusive, you can do all this stuff, right. but, but if we focus pretty hard on recycling and circularity at the enterprise level, we can have dramatic impacts on our net zero goals by just doing that. We don't need to overthink it. Right. So International Supply Chain Day was really launched to bring awareness to that very simple concept, but then also find a way to measure and track against it. So I want to I I come back to... Uh, some other big supply chain topics. I want to talk for a second about giving forward, uh, you know, yeah. uh, giving back, giving forward, whatever you want to call it, the service mindset. Clearly, from what I've observed of you, Richard Donaldson, is you're a big believer in, in our responsibility and how important it is as business leaders to give back and give forward, whatever you want to call it. Here recently, I loved how we've been supporting a virtual internship program for a couple of years. Uh, Allison and, and a few other folks have been leading this program, which really creates awareness for uh, for students in, in a variety of business sectors to include supply chain. And you stepped in on short notice. They had a, a speaker gap. You stepped in. And clearly, I think you wowed the students and I think the students wowed you, perhaps. Uh, so tell us. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so touch on that experience, but also touch on the greater topic of uh, what is the importance of giving forward? Yeah, absolutely. No, uh, great question. And I think it's also something that is becoming top of mind more and more. You know, it's not just, just. I mean, it's just, I think you're hitting on something that I think people are just, you know, paying it forward. It's a concept that we've been hearing a lot about. It's, it's, it's taking hold and it should take hold. In direct response to that event, 
it, it was a, a, I don't remember the schools. I, I think it was affiliated with the University of um, uh, Georgia right. Tech. Sorry, Georgia Tech, yep. I believe. And, you know, it was a group of, and I love the term, neurodiverse students, right? So, you know, traditionally we would say they may have a mental challenge of some sort, whatever that may be. But the point of the program was to say, okay, let's remove, let's focus in on the things that you do exceptionally well and see how we can kind of help you develop that as a life career or kind of goal, skill, whatever. So A, I just, I love the idea of helping people to see and realize their potential, which is a lot of a consistency around paying it forward that I like to think about. Because in this case, it was, it, it wasn't, you know, I don't feel like I really did anything. I was just there to be a representative of what all of these kids could aspire to become. Right. And I, you know, ensuring that they understood that, you know, while they might have challenges, everyone has challenges, right? Theirs might be a little bit more acute, perhaps, but those, but then they also had other acute skills right. that, you know, some, I mean, literally some of these kids were, you know, like, like, you know, the savants, like they were like their brains worked in a way that they mathematically could compute stuff that a su supercomputer like could barely keep mm. up with, right? So how do you kind of tap into that incredible potential? Right. You know, cause so many people lose sight of that nugget of opportunity because they see someone who's challenged and instead don't focus on the challenges, focus on the opportunity and, and kind of convey that message there and really help people get through because gosh darn it we all have anxieties we all are kind of beating ourselves up and a lot of what i've found in my own kind of coaching and mentoring and even in this 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 group of kids was helping messaging them to them that hey you know don't ever lose sight of the fact that you have unlimited potential right doesn't mean you can do anything, let's be honest, right? I mean, I'm not saying like, you know, those guys could go out and, you know, win the decathlon or something like that. And I'm not, I'm not trying to poke fun right. at that. I'm just saying like, yeah. that's just the reality, right? But they have strengths that they need to be recognized and build upon. Right. And it's one of the things that I talk a lot about in not just my journey, but then also in the mentoring is a concept I like to call confident humility, right? And it sounds like a diametrically kind of opposed words, you know, confident and humble. But what I mean by that is being confident in what you know how to do and equally confident in what you don't know how to do. And as simple, and Adam Grant's a wonderful behavioral psychologist that talks a lot about this. And I don't know if he came up with it or I did, but it doesn't matter, <laughs> whatever. It's the concept, right. right? And the idea is that I have found that, you know, as adults, we have a hard time, and this is universal, we have a hard time admitting things we don't know how to do. It's almost like it, we're, we're held back by this inner child that always wants to be seen by the parents. You know, they want to prove to their parents they know how to do stuff. They want to prove that they can do something and they want to prove that they're right. And as adults, we almost have to unlearn that and recognize we can't do everything. Right. We can only do certain things well. And these kids actually lived and breathed that because they were started with, a bunch of like challenges. So it was almost in the reverse of saying, okay, I know you've you're like, yeah, okay, you're more than enough realized you got challenges, but you also have these unique skills that no one else has. Right. Let's focus on those. Let's shine a spotlight on those. So, you know, the, the, the pay forward kind of global concept of really helping people to realize their potential, doesn't matter where they are, uh, you know, what walk of life they come from. I have found that to be one of the more rewarding things, you know, in, in my career. Love doing that. Love speaking to anybody and everybody about that. Love that. So it is so important for where we are. I mean, it, it, it goes back to driving change and, and, um, mm -hmm. and helping others. You know, I love that, that image, a ladder, you know, once you hit the top of the ladder, make sure you're, you're, you're putting the ladder down to help, you know, help the other folks get up there. Totally. Totally. So let's talk about the switch gears. Let's talk about back on the content creation side. So your podcast. Sure. Yes, sir. Tell us, tell us what your um, your driving mission there is, and 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 why you you know you talked about spotlighting others, uh, as you alluded to earlier on. This is one of the first times in a little while that you, you know, tables have been turned, and 
and the questions have come your way. Why do you enjoy that with your podcast? Why do you like hearing from others and spotlighting their, their POV? Yeah. So, so uh, I think just like you, I mean, one of the things I've really found in the, the goal of the podcast wasn't to do a podcast. It was really to kind of harness a lot of thought leadership, create a consistent conversation amongst different people around the world and find the common themes on what's actually helping supply chain evolve or transform. That was sort of the working premise behind the, the show. And you know, I think you guys have been in it for a long time. You're infinitely bigger than we are, and which is great. But but it's also an example here where the conversations that we're all having they're important to begin to sort of cross reference them. Sure. Because kind of I go back to my data center industry experience and bringing that collaboration together. I find through the podcast a way to create collaborative conversation that then can be captured and ultimately disseminated to the wider supply chain world, right? right? These are all the people that you want to get the ideas from. It's, it's basically like having an interactive panel, you know, on internet steroids, right? <laughs> Where you have all this incredible content that you generate that then becomes permanent in the internet fabric, right? And so you can reference it and pull it together. And so the idea between the episodes is really to kind of focus on a wide variety. So it's, I mean, it's the full spectrum. It's, it's people who are in the consulting, people who are heads of supply chain, people who are consultants, people who are academics, people who are in procurement. I mean, and finding common themes around, because there are common themes in supply chain evolution. I mean, one of the things that, that we can all say is we're all trying to digitize and leverage technology. Okay, well, what does that really mean? You know, I mean, it's one thing to say those words. I, again, tend to be a fairly practical person. I like to kind of dumb it down to like, what is that, what does digitization right. mean? And, you know, going and talking to other people through the podcast and what do they mean by digitization? What do you mean by digitization? There's, there's a common kind of understanding of digitization for me, very simply is literally just building technology foundations within the supply chain that enable one to take advantage of all the technology that's out there, you know, from IOT to big data to all, but, you know, because we all get lost in these, but you know, AI and machine learning and you know, blah 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 this, but underneath it all, you still need to have you still need to have a digital twin of your assets. I kind of go back to that common theme because if you don't have that, everything else doesn't work. Right. You're, 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 how are you going to have artificial intelligence about your supply chain if you don't know what your assets are doing? What does that mean? So trying to find that common, you know, uh, core lowest common denominator. The podcast has been success, or I, I, we've been fortunate enough, I should say, to have kind of brought that out through the guests and the episodes and the conversations, and then that that so that's that's really what it's been about. It's a beautiful thing, and and you know the democratization of thought leadership and content and digital content has also been a beautiful thing. Two point over two point six million podcasts. I love your thoughts around how you use it because it's far beyond. Uh, you know, recording something and drop in an RSS feed. It is about, you know, bringing people together. It is about moving, um, uh, using it as a tool for progress and, and, mm -hmm. and challenging thoughts and, and creating consensus. Mm -hmm. So I love that. Mm -hmm. uh, and also the, uh, you alluded to on the, on the first part of your answer, there's all sorts of folks that contribute from all walks of life yeah. into global business and global supply chain. And that's the only way, you know, leveraging all of that talent folks that win the Catalans and folks like me that can never win the Catalans. Yeah. Uh, right there with you, man. Right. Academics, practitioners, senior leaders, frontline, you name it. All those folks is how we're going to move this industry forward in a, in a meaningful way. So I love that, Richard. Let's, I wish we had. Well, let me, let me, because you reminded me one yeah. thing. I just want to give a shout out to Brian AOE, right, of uh, Refashion Ventures. And he's the one who told this to me once. And, and I, the words ring true as you were describing that, which is, one of the beautiful things about supply chain, right? Unlike pretty much any other part of the enterprise, all seven and a half billion people on this planet are a part of the supply chain. Whether they're consumers or producers, whether they're actively involved in it, they are a part of the supply chain. So the supply chain actually connects the world. So to your point in this discussion, everybody can have input in how to make a better global supply chain. We all can have an impact, right? And it's not to be fully grandiose, but it's true. Right. I mean, everything that anyone does in any given day is involved in the supply chain. 
whether they think of it that way or not. Right. And, you know, Brian, you know, when I had an episode with him brought that up and I was like, wow, that's absolutely true. You know, this is, you know, unlike finance or sales or marketing, supply chain is a unifier amongst everybody on this planet, right? Both as consumers or professionals or whatever, because we're all a part of the supply chain. You're absolutely right. And I think one of the silver linings of this last 18 months, 24 months, what have you, is uh, more and more folks are beginning to realize that. And, and that's a powerful mm -hmm. awareness that, that uh, that's going to help us <laughs> circling back. Everything circles back to the change, the problems, uh, small and big that we're, we're fighting through uh, with awareness yep. comes new ideas, new solutions, better consensus. Uh, you name it. So uh, that's a wonderful thing. All right. So let's, I wish we had about two more hours with you, Richard. I knew we had a lot of stuff that we wanted to chat through. There's so much that you're up to, but let's make sure folks know how to connect with you, mm -hmm. Richard. And you know, all the stuff you're involved in from Request to International Supply Chain Day to some of your, your give back stuff to the, of course, the podcast and beyond. How can yep. folks connect with you, Richard? Absolutely. Easy place is LinkedIn. Do everything on LinkedIn. You and I go back and forth with LinkedIn. So it's just RH Donaldson. Uh, find me on there. I'm open to connecting all the time. You know, uh, just, yeah, that, that's the easiest spot. It's just that easy. Richard Donaldson. Uh, you can search Richard Donaldson Requis and that'll take you right there. Of course, folks, yep. anyone listening to this or watching this, we're going to make it even easier. We're going to include Richard's uh, contact information, including the LinkedIn link in the show notes, one click away from connecting with the Dynamo. That is Richard Donaldson. Richard, I think I think if we uh, plugged you up to the electrical grid, you could probably power a small city. Uh, so <laughs> lots of passion, purpose, um, and energy, which is, is so important here. Okay, one last question, and I promise you I'll, I'll give your time back. One last question. As you survey global business and survey global supply mm -hmm. chain, beyond anything you've shared here today, what's one thing? that you're tracking uh, and you would maybe encourage any listeners or viewers of this conversation to uh, dive deeper into. Easy. So in that one, again, I would, I would actually begin to start looking at, and I, I kind of have a love hate relationship with the UN because <laughs> in the one hand, I, you know, I enjoy some of the things that they're trying to get done. I'm not a huge fan of the bureaucracy, but regardless, the UN's initiative on net zero, I think that is a binding force across all the supply chain and people. Um, I think we're at a point now that doesn't matter who you are, how you think politically, sustainability is a big deal, right? And even as we begin to evolve and move and, you know, outside of this planet, and I mean that seriously, as we go to Mars and the moon and everything else, I mean, we're, I mean William Shatner, for God's sakes, was just put into space, right. uh, you know, Captain Kirk is, is finally <laughs> visited space, Right. And I don't know if you saw it, but he actually held up a sign that said, suck it, Picard. Uh, I thought that was awesome. <laughs> and right? Picard. I mean, talk about the, yeah, right? Like, I mean, I mean, just anyway. But, you know, coming back to the question, I would, if you wanted to get into the global supply chain, kind of where things are going, and I have some critical ideas or thoughts or criticisms, I should say, of the net zero project at the UN, but the idea is the right idea the concept around moving us towards circularity. You know, enterprises are sitting on probably the biggest economic windfall. They just don't realize it yet in all the stuff they've been acquiring and they're sitting on. If they just move that into more of a recycling circular concept, we will be well on our way towards achieving the sustainability goals that are outlined in those net zero programs. So I think that's kind of where I'd start to begin pointing people to, and you can dive into all sorts of parts of it, but I'll, 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 as you, if you've also guessed, it's hard for me to be brief. So I'll, I'll try to stop it there because I could keep going for a while. Well, you know, I'm, I'm still on suck at Picard and you know, we got it. We got to <laughs> We got to explain that because some folks may not okay. realize uh, you and I, oh, honey, I mean, okay. You're you right. And I We're both geeks, probably so, appreciate right. uh, Star Trek. Yes, and I'll admit I am yeah. I am a Star Trek nerd, perhaps. But Picard was the the Star Trek Next Generation uh, captain of the Correct. Enterprise, right? Which came out in the Correct. late '80s and early '90s. And of course, William Shatner was Captain Kirk from the original series and some of the movies that came from that. So there's a healthy probably rivalry, but between all the crews that represent different Star Trek uh, franchises, right? 
Hundred percent. You got William Shatner. You got Patrick Stewart, two of the greatest Star Trek captains of you know all time. Actors, whatever you know, all the things that they've done. But to have a little bit, I mean, to have to take a moment like that and create. I mean, not only is it great to see a ninety-one-year-old guy get shot into space, right? right in William Shatner, he's ninety-one. I mean, let's not overlook the fact guys ninety-one years old going to space. Um, and that's not. I mean, I don't care who you right. are, but getting shot up in a rocket is probably not physically. The most comfortable thing you've ever done. So for him to be able to do that, and he looks, and Shatner looks fabulous, by the way, as a 91-year-old. I mean, with the pictures, I'm like, holy God, like that guy's 91. Like, I mean, you know, he looks amazing. But then also to take a moment and have that kind of levity. I mean, it's, it's you know, I, I just, it, it's a testament to both of those gentlemen in, in their ability to, to have fun during something, you know, as momentous like that. And I just think, you know, sometimes we need to bring a little bit more levity, especially in the current environment we're in right. and have a little bit more fun. I, I'm with you hundred uh, percent uh, with you and uh, maintaining that sense of humor during these challenging times is really important. So yep. we're going to have to leave it at that. There's so much else that we'll get to. We'll, we'll have another conversation soon. We've been talking with Richard Donaldson with Requis. Thanks so much for your time today, Richard. Scott, my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. Definitely. We'll talk soon. So folks, hopefully you've enjoyed this conversation, this wide-ranging conversation as much as I have. I've got my proverbial 17 pages of notes from some of Richard's comments around, you know, using those early days, right? Using those days before you get all the responsibilities that careers and families bring, man, really using those to explore what you want in life to his journey, uh, his journey of not listening to others and doing what he wants to do. That's, that is really important. Never quit. And of course, all of his thoughts around supply chain and Star Trek. So with that, hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. Hey, be sure to find Supply Chain now wherever you get your podcast from. Be sure to find Supply Chain next wherever you get your podcast from. Subscribe so you don't miss conversations. And on behalf of the rest of our team here at Supply Chain Now, Scott Luton signing off just for now, though challenging you to be like Richard Donaldson, do good, give forward, be the change that's needed. And on that note, we'll see you next time right back here at Supply Chain Now. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being a part of our Supply Chain Now community. Check out all of our programming at supplychainnow.com and make sure you subscribe to Supply Chain Now anywhere you listen to podcasts and follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. See you next time on Supply Chain Now.